Welcome to the Kohani podcast from me, Isaac Mwema. This is where we build each other up in the faith so that we can be a holy and priestly people. This means that we strive for and are changed by God's presence while also influencing others to be changed by that same presence. Welcome to this week's podcast. We'll be talking on overcoming self-idolatry. This morning, I'd like to remind you that every portion of kingdom land is contested. So while we spend our time trying to appease ourselves, trying to make ourselves to be cozy and to make the worship of God all about us, let us remember that every portion of the kingdom of God is contested against. When we compartmentalize our lives and we say that this is as far as worshiping God goes and that other areas can stay, let us remember that even those, there is a warfare for them. And that is where the enemy will find a gap and God forbid. Romans chapter 8 cautions us against being led by the desires of our flesh. It tells us that there is a life of being led by the impulses of the spirit of the living God. That when we are led by the impulses of the flesh, there is a death that happens. There is a spiritual death that occurs deep within us. And we might not even know it. That without time, without having time in worship before God, in word and in fellowship with him, we are disconnected from the vine. And he says that without him, we cannot do anything. So without knowing him, we, without knowing it, we become estranged and we become so far away from God when we are led by the desires of our flesh. Even though we can spiritualize it, even though we can give it an amen and and hallelujah, but at the end of the day, it's good to ask the Spirit of the Lord to search us from within, to know what the intentions are for our pursuit of God, because we could well be led by our flesh and we do not know. It's important to note that even though we talk about warfare and defeating the camp of the enemy, that many a times the main enemy to the progress of the kingdom of God is our own flesh, our own self. Therefore, there is a bold movement for a child and a daughter of God today to declare that they surrender, that the Lord might use them for his purpose and his cause. There is a need to come under his kingship and his lordship today that we may not be the hindrance to the progress of the move of God. Hebrews 13, 8 to 16, cautions us about a type of priestliness that only wants to stay in the temple and observe the pious things of God, but does not go out to partake of the sacrifice of Christ. It is an analogy from Leviticus that during the sacrifice of atonement, the priest would kill the bull for himself and his family first, and then he would kill the god that was to be offered as a sacrifice for the sake of the people. And he would drain their blood and bring it inside the Holy of Holies for the sake of the atonement of the people. But that flesh of the bull and of the God was not to be eaten. This was a peculiar sacrifice. In other sacrifices that were being offered in the temple, the priests were allowed to eat of that sacrifice that was brought. They were allowed to eat of that meat. But when it comes to the atonement, they were not allowed to eat of it. This is symbolic that even though 
We have entered into the Holy of Holies and are sanctified. We are not meant to remain just in our religious piety and in religious observance and formality. That we just take our boxes and say that we have done this, we have gone to church, we have given tithe, we have gone to fellowship and this and that. But that in our daily lives we are not transformed. We are different people. We have not allowed the word to touch us in those little and subtle spaces of our lives where people are meant to see the glory of God. <clears throat> we are meant to be the souls and the light of the world. We are meant to give flavor and to reveal to people what a life in God is. We are supposed to help them to make sense of this life through our fellowship with God and living in the purposes of God. But that if we don't pursue a life with God beyond Sunday, beyond just religious conformity, then the people won't have a blueprint of what it means to pursue a life in God. Therefore, that's what we are cautioned in Hebrews about a priestliness that is not based on grace. The writer says that we should be strengthened by grace. That means transformed and changed in the inner place, washed by the blood. But that that is not all. That is the beginning. It says that we should go out where that sacrifice is. That sacrifice that was not allowed to enter into the temple that the priest could not eat. It was outside the camp. The sacrifice was to be burned outside the camp. That is where the body of Christ is. The body that took the punishment that was the sacrifice was crucified in Golgotha. That is beyond the main city of Jerusalem. It was outside the camp. It is a symbolism of a sacrifice of atonement. And so also for us, since we are the body of Christ, when we are washed in the blood, when we are sanctified, when we are changed in his presence, God now sends us to go and share in his sufferings, to go and love sacrificially, to go and give without expectations, to go and share in the gospel. In Hebrews, we are told that we are meant to partake in that sacrifice of the body of Christ that is outside the camp by offering sacrifices of praise from our lips that is a sweet pleasing aroma before the God before the Lord that means we live a life of continuous worship and praise regardless of our situation and circumstance and it also says that we live a life of charity a life of sacrifice of uh, sacrifice to one and another living our lives giving ourselves each to one another, submitting to one another, loving one another. And in that, that is a pleasing aroma unto the Lord. So we are not just meant to remain in the cocoon of staying in religious conformity, but there is a necessary going out of the camp and into the world where we become the salt and the light, where we become priests that offer the sacrifices to God continually. So, that is the assignment that I have this morning, saints. And we'll pray before we begin our main discussion. Let's pray. Dear God, give us the strength that comes by your grace to change us from within, that strengthens our inner man, that we may be able to comprehend together with the saints the depths and the heights and the breadth and the length of the love of God that surpasses knowledge be evident here and right now i need your spirit may your power and your glory be revealed change hearts do a surgery right now make business with people as we proclaim the word we bind strongholds and every thought that lifts itself against the lord that these dear ones may come to the obedience of Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. <clears throat> I will be drawing my inspiration from a book called Epistle to the Romans, Epistle to the Romans by 
a theologian called Karl Barth, K-A-R-L-B-A-R-T-H, Karl Barth, Epistle to the Romans. He's talking about our relationship to God if it is on the wrong side of resurrection. Romans 1 verse 18, just after Paul says that he is indebted to preach the gospel and that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. In it is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith, for the righteous shall live by faith. Then he comes to this, Romans chapter 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I'll read that again. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So I'll be reading parts of this book by Karl Barth and I'll be interjecting with my own commentary according to what I understand what he was saying. So I'll be, by the grace of God, I'll be careful to mention where it is the book and where it is me speaking. So this is what the book says. These are the characteristic features of our relation, of, of our relation to God as it takes shape on this side of resurrection. There is a need for a relationship to God. This is now me speaking. There is a need for a relationship with God to undergo a crucifixion. It is dangerous when we follow God without crucifying ourselves daily. Jesus told his disciples, whoever wants to follow me must take up his cross and follow me. He told them they must count the cost of following him. He does not just require a following him, but there is a crucifixion that needs to happen to follow him. That is so that we can always keep our flesh in check, without which we might be following our own desires, as we said in Romans chapter 8, and we do not know it. There is a solemn, there is a solemn detachment from our flesh that needs to go that we need to continuously go through while we're in the motions of following Jesus or else we will glorify and worship ourselves without knowing. So back to the book. Our relation to God is ungodly. We suppose we know what we are saying when we say God. We assign to him the highest place in our world and in so doing we place him fundamentally on one line with ourselves and with things. So this is me interpreting the text that the writer saying that the danger of our relationship to God is that we can make it to be ungodly. How? By assigning to God the highest place in our world. You know the way we try to be religious and say that God occupies number one in our lives and then comes our family and then after family comes ministry and then after ministry comes other things. I'd like to suggest that that is also a faulty perspective of our relationship to God. God is not to adjust himself unto our world and so that we can try to see where he fits in the list of priority. We are meant to fit into God's world. That's what the writer is saying. We're told that in the New Testament that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his dear son. So we have come into a new kingdom reality that needs our adjustment to it. God has not come into our world so that he tries to arrange himself in the pecking order of our lives. No. We are meant to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's what we are told. 
since we have come into this kingdom, we are meant to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. As Jesus was proclaiming that the kingdom was at hand, he was on the other hand saying that the people should repent for the kingdom is at hand. Repentance is supposed to be our first response to the kingdom. It means that we are changing our minds from what we knew, from all our priorities, from all the things that we love and we attach ourselves to, and that we are turning towards God and we are entering into that kingdom. We are being baptized by the fire of God and that we are aligning ourselves to him. It's not God aligning himself to us. So it is our responsibility to adjust ourselves to God's world. Back to the book. We assume that he, that means God, needs something. And so that we are able to arrange our relationship to him as we arrange our other relationships. We place ourselves in proximity with him. And so all unthinking we make ourselves, well, we make him nigh unto ourselves. So I'll interpret the text that Jesus does not owe us anything. He is king. And if I've not emphasized that enough from the previous podcast, I pray that you listen to the echo of that word over and over again in your hearts right now. Jesus does not owe us anything. He is king. Let us not assume that God needs something of us. Let us not act It is as if God owes us something. It's as if we are doing God a favor. It is a dangerous place to be as a Christian. The pre-exilic warnings by Isaiah to Judah and Israel shows that the reason why God was sending them to exile was because of their familiarity with God. In Isaiah 1 verse 4, he says, They have despised the Holy One of Israel. The ox knows its house, but my children do not know their honor. And he says that they have despised the Holy One of Israel because they thought that they were the children of Abraham. They thought they could get away with things. Isaiah 3 verse 8 says, By their speech and deeds they have defied his glorious presence. They had the Ark of the Covenant. They had the temple of God. And so because of that, they thought that God would be on their side always. We remember from the last podcast, we were talking about Isaiah chapter 5. And God saying that he would remove the hedge of his presence. Because the investment of the kingdom has come to them. God has given them his very Shekinah glory. He has invested in them. As a people, spiritually and morally, he has given them the law. He has provided everything that they need to walk in godliness. But they were being unfruitful. They were being rebellious. They were being socially unjust. Their lives were not matching their sacrifices. And so God was proclaiming that their sacrifices have become a burden unto him. So by their speech and their deeds, they have defied his glorious presence. So God was warning them that my presence is right here with you. But there is a sense of entitlement that you have. There is a familiarity that you have with me. That you're not allowing my presence to change you. You have lost that sense of awe and wonder when worshipping the Lord. Therefore in the exile period, the temple is taken away from them. Until it is rebuilt again in the times of Nehemiah and Ezra. And even after that, when Jesus came, he proclaimed that this second temple that was built after Solomon's temple was destroyed in the exile, Jesus said that I will destroy it. He said, so that you know my power, I can destroy this temple and raise it up within three days. And so right after several years after the, the death and crucifixion of Jesus, the second temple was also destroyed. So there's a defiance of the presence of God that happens within us 
and that we, if we are not careful, the glory may be taken away from us. It happened to Israel, and we are warned in the book of Romans that they are an example to us, that when we feel we are entitled as a New Testament church, when we feel that now God is here for us to sort of do a favor to him, and it's sort of like he needs us, let's remember that there was a branch that was cut off so that we were planted in this tree. Isaiah 5.13, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. He's not talking about knowledge of scriptures. He's not talking about knowledge of religion. He's not talking about knowledge of their covenant promises. No, they knew all that as Israels, as Israelites, as Jewish people. He's talking about intimate knowledge with God. Does that knowledge transform you? They die because of lack of intimate knowledge with me. There's a knowledge that is beyond knowledge. Now that you know the word, now that you have revelations, now that you know the covenant promises, now that you know scriptures, do not think that you have figured out God. There is a necessary crucifixion daily. There is a longing and a desire that you need to place upon your heart and your soul daily to be changed by him. In Isaiah 9 verse 6, he tells us about a, a child that is born. Unto us a child is born, and his name shall be one of the names of God there is mighty God. God is so mighty that he is not moved by our small arguments of self-gratification. God is so mighty and transcendent and beyond our small arguments of self-gratification. Let's remember that. We go back to the book. We allow ourselves an ordinary communication with him. I'll interpret that in charismatic circles today, there is a casual relationship that we have with God that is ungodly. That God now tells you when to shower, and God tells you which color of a dress to wear and which not. That we now are going to debts with the Holy Spirit. I have a problem with that. Let's be careful to worship God with reverence and with fear and with awe. That we don't allow a casual relationship, an ordinary relationship with God. He remains king. If you want to... To have a real debt with God, the only scriptural allowance is prayer. Have secluded time of fasting and prayer in your private space. Don't say that you're going to the, with the Holy Spirit to a restaurant. Don't say that the Holy Spirit is taking you to the bathroom to shower. Hey, back to the book. We permit ourselves to reckon with him as though there were no extraordinary behavior on our part. I'll interpret that we have sermons and a way of worship today that is so convenient. It does not cost us anything. We want to go to services and be told how good we are and how God just loves us. We want to compose songs about ourselves and about how God loves us and view us. That's, those are our worship songs today. It's just about us. There needs to be a proclamation of the word of God that puts heaven's demand on our souls. That makes us to feel that there is something that is required of us. Even in the era of grace, there is an appropriate response of holiness that is required. I'll go back to the book. We dare to deck ourselves out as his companions, patrons, advisors, and commissioners, we confound time with eternity. This is the ungodliness of our relation to God, and our relation to God is unrighteous. We confound time with eternity. I'll interpret that from Genesis chapter 6 onwards, God has been out to destroy and utterly destroy a mutation of that is formed out of what is divine and what is carnal. 
from Genesis chapter 6, there was a mutation that happened, that the sons of God slept with the daughters of men. The divine mingled itself with what is carnal. And what happened? It produced a mutation. Beings that were half angelic and half human. Giants and great men who did great things on the earth. Nephilims. Giant tribes and nations started to form from there. It was only Noah that separated himself and kept himself pure. And so the Lord saved him and his family by association because the, his lineage was kept pure from such a defilement and a mixing. But God destroys utterly all those other mutations. He sends a flood to sweep the earth. And even though God makes a covenant with Noah and saying that I will no longer destroy the earth like this again, he does not stop his pursuit to kill this mutation. The Israelites had to wage war over and over again against nations, Canaanite nations that had giant figures. Even in Canaan, there were giants. Remember when the spies went? There were those spies who went and they say, we saw giants that was too big for us. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. But there are those spies who are full of faith and say that they are too big for us to miss. And so they had to be utterly destroyed when the walls of Jericho came down. David had to fight Goliath. He was such a mutation also. A representation of a mutation that occurs when the divine mixes with what is carnal. And David had to destroy it because he was defiling the name of the Lord. He was standing and intimidating the camp of Israel. And Saul, who only knows how to hide, because he has not been in the presence of God, he only knows how to be a servant, but not a son. He needs a David that comes from the presence of God and that has fought his own bears and lions. It takes such a man who has seen how big God is in the private space to, de to know in the, in, in the public space also that God is more big than this thing that is standing before me. So God has been all out to destroy a mixture, a, a mutation of what is divine and what is carnal. So we confined, we confound time with eternity. Us, we do so. We're trying to create a mixture of what is divine with what is carnally pleasing unto ourselves. Such kind of a mixture, God has declared war against it. Go back to the book. Secretly, we are ourselves the master in this relationship. We are not really concerned with God, but with our own requirements to which God must adjust himself. Our arrogance demands that, in addition to everything else, some super world should also be known and accessible to us. Our conduct calls from, for some deeper sanction, some approbation or appreciation and remuneration from another world. I'll interpret that we have the arrogance to come before God every time and demand and become entitled that God must pay us. He must appreciate us for being in a relationship with him and serving him. This is transactional worship. That every time that we gather before him, we cannot worship him for being God and just being God that God must give us something. He must bribe us with something. He must, hey, we have become children that only wants the goodies, but we don't want the parent. We want the inheritance. We want the possessions. We want the privileges of the kingdom, but we don't want the responsibility. True inheritance comes after the responsibility has changed us and our character. Then we are given the true blessing. Jacob had to be broken fast. His cry was that the, he will not live until the Lord changes him. 
So the Lord had to do the necessary. There was a necessary breaking to make covenant with him. For covenant means a slaughter, a breaking, a cutting. So God had to break him before he now commissioned him. He had to change his name from a trickster to that of a nation. He had to change his purpose and his vision from being selfish to now thinking of generations, of generations and lineages ahead of him before he could now proclaim a blessing on him. So when we just come and our purpose for worship is just a blessing, a blessing and that God should bless us, let's remember that there's a necessary breaking that we need to welcome in our lives. When we sing that Jehovah is your name, mighty warrior, great in battle, he needs to war with us like he warred with Jacob first. We need to welcome that fight, that contention, where we fight with God, knowing very well that he's going to win. But that we allow that fight so that he changes whatever is not healthy in us. I'll continue. Our well-regulated pleasurable life longs for some hours of devotion some prolongation into infinity i'll interpret that we have in consistent devotion with god today because of how busy we are in our lives now that we are blessed of the lord now that he has given us things now that by his mercy sometimes he answers to our prayer and he gives us the blessing we idolize it and so we have some hours of devotion here and there and then we can skip for a long time fill fill that space with netflix and entertainment and and work and whatnot and uh, we are rightly justifying it by saying that our children are also a ministry and that our work is also a ministry but that we don't have time to sit in the presence of the lord that was the sin of saul he has so much time for service going to war and fighting the Philistines and recruiting young men to his own purpose and agenda. But he has no time to dwell in the presence of the one. The difference between him and David is not that one was perfect than the other. David was not perfect. The difference between them was that one was willing, even though with his imperfection, to say, better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. One would say, that I hunger and I thirst after you. My soul longs after you, Lord. That David, despite the wealth that he had and the privileges that he had and the wars that he had as a king, he longed to stay in the presence of the Lord, in the tent of God. Despite the pleasures of the palace, he would stay in the tent of God. Is that our cry and our hunger today? It is only that person who stays in the tent of God, in the presence of God, that can rightly stand before a Goliath, that will not be intimidated by a Goliath. But the one who only spends his time in service to God and wanting to be blessed as Saul, he cowers when a Goliath comes. A Goliath is sent by God to expose the Davidic and that which is soulish. I'll continue. And so when we set God upon the throne of the, of the world, we mean by God ourselves. In believing on him, in quotes, believing faith on him, we justify, enjoy, and adore ourselves. I'll interpret that faith has been turned, has been turned only into something that we want God to do for us and name it and claim it kind of faith. And we wonder why our faith comes to crisis when God does not answer our prayers. Because we, we only manufactured our faith to be all about us and God doing what we want. We manufactured an environment of impossibility, which is, which is what faith brings, an impossible atmosphere, but that we manufactured it to only be God fulfilling our needs and our desires. We need 
even though God has called us to a place of prayer and supplication and lifting our burdens to him and asking him and knocking at the door, the highest form of prayer is adoration. It is coming to the place of saying that even though you, even if you won't fulfill what I'm asking, may your will be done in my life. Many hypergress, charismatic and word of faith cycles, circles cannot accept that. They call it unbelief when you give room for God to do what he wills. Tell me if that is not a self-idolatry. We need a Gethsemane encounter. That Jesus was expressing his faith. He was expressing his need that would take this cup if it is possible. But even so, there was an elevated point of faith of saying, even so, let your will be done. Do we give room for an even if faith? There needs to be a room for an even if faith. It is not doubt. It is not being double-minded. Double-minded is believing that God can do it, but at the same time believing that he can do it. But true faith does not contradict reality. That even though I've offered this request unto God, there's a possibility that he might have a, a mind of his own and he's justified as God to do so. And even if you don't answer my prayer, I will still believe in you. That is faith. That is not doubt. That is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego told Nebuchadnezzar. will not bow down before you, even if you throw us in, into this fire. We know that our God will rescue us. That is faith number one. But the higher elevation of faith was number two, the number two gear. Even if he doesn't come to rescue us, we will still not bow down to you. We know that he is still faithful. We know that he is still good. We know that he is still wonderful and has his best. He has our best interest at heart. It is a place of confidence that our faith will not be shaken even if our prayers won't be answered. That is faith. But we have used our faith only to the level where God is meant to fulfill what we want. And then when he doesn't, that's when we realize we set ourselves up for failure. And many lose the faith then. They say that God doesn't exist. That's because you formed a version of your own God and that he did not work. That idol fell down. May God have mercy on us. We continue. Our devotion consists in a solemn affirmation of ourselves and of the world and in a pious setting aside of the contradiction. I'll interpret that we now claim that God cannot let us suffer. That now our devotions, our worship with God is all about affirming ourselves you know, and the world and saying that God should give us mansions and the things of this world and the things of this earth and that we put a religious, a pious stamp on it, saying that anything that is contrary is not God, that God cannot let us suffer. Hey, we are idolizing ourselves. I continue, under the banners of humility and emotion, we rise in rebellion against God, I'll interpret that emotional worship does not change us. When we turn the speakers higher and we put a band and we put smoke and lights and we put a nice stage with a large screen and a TV, you know, and the speakers are so good and high quality, that that is very possible for that just to create an emotional environment, but that in our hearts, when we go back home, we are as empty as ever. that we could well be thinking that we are humble before God, but that we are rebelling against him. I'll continue. We confound time with eternity. This is our unrighteousness. Such is our relation to God apart from and without Christ on this side of resurrection and before we are called to order. 
God himself is not acknowledged as God, and what is called God is in fact man. By living to ourselves, we serve the no-God. The no-God meaning us, the small God, that is not God. There is need for a prophetic church. There are dimensions in the kingdom of God that we will not be able to tap into if we are not able to be prophetic in our texture of worship and service. You become prophetic when you have the faith to allow God to be God in your life. That means you're not succumbing to pressure from society, your personal opinions, or even former experiences with God, but you're allowing God to do as he wills, part-time and season. This, allow you, this allows you to tap into things that are beyond your dispensation, your season, or even your age. It means you have tapped into the very nature of God because you have allowed him to be, to be God without bias, and you're allowing him to be the I am that I am. There are people who walked in this reality. They tapped into dimensions that were way before them. We are told, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was able to tap into the dispensation of grace where he was. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was able to tap into the righteousness of God. Even though this was a time when the law was not there, but he was able to tap into the righteousness of God. Even though this was a time when Christ was not there, but he was able to tap into the righteousness of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, the prophet Isaiah, tapped into a dimension that was way beyond him. The prophets in the Old Testament, there's something prophetic that when it allows God to be God, you are able to draw something of God that is even way beyond you, generations beyond you, ages beyond you. That becomes a prophetic church. It allows us to go into dimensions of the kingdom as never before, but there is a cost to pay. We need to allow God to be God. That's how the prophets in the Old Testament were able to see dispensations and dimensions beyond them. And so is a prophetic church and a prophetic man. Will we acknowledge God as God today? Or is our God, in quotes, a man, us, or our pastor that we have idolized? So that was Romans 1 verse 18a. So this is Romans 1 verse 18b. It says, Who hold the truth imprisoned in righteousness? Verse 18a said, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then it continues, Who hold the truth imprisoned in unrighteousness. So this is what the book says. Thinking of ourselves, what can be thought only of God, we are unable to think of him more highly than we think of ourselves. Being to ourselves, what God ought to be to us, he is no more to us than we are to ourselves. This secret identification of ourselves to God carries with it isolation from him. This little God, small g, must quite appropriately dispossess the great God, capital G. Have we imprisoned the truth in unrighteousness? by taking God's place in our lives, by taking the dials and the controls of our lives, we have imprisoned his truth. We are warned in Second Samuel chapter 6 about putting the glory of God in boxes. God cannot be contained. That God destroyed the new cut that was being used to carry the Ark of the Covenant and that God made the cart to crumble and fall and while the Ark of the Covenant was falling Uzzah, out of his own good intentions wanted to rescue the Ark 
So when he touched the ark, wanting to prevent it from falling, God struck him and he died. God detests the mechanical and fleshly manipulation of his glory. The cart represents putting the glory of God in a box, in something mechanical, in something of our human manufacturing. He will not accept that. His glory is meant to dwell in people and to change them and transform them. It will no longer dwell in a mechanical kind of service and worship, in a, in a formulaic kind of worship where we come and do this and do that. And it's an order of service that we have now set, thinking that it will take us into the presence of God. He will let that to crumble. He does not want any flesh to touch the ark, any human effort or work. God is only pleased by what he does himself. His glory cannot be shared, nor can it be contained. In the same second Samuel chapter 6, verse 13, after David was frightened and he put the ark in the house of Obed-Edom, and God was pleased with where the ark was now, and he blessed the house of Obed-Edom because God was proclaiming that he will dwell in people. He will not dwell in mechanical things that men make. He does not require fleshly effort. He wants a house to reside in. His glory wants a place to reside in. So David brought the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with dancing. And three things are mentioned. Number one, that they carried the ark and made six big steps. Number one. Number two, they sacrificed an ox. Number three, they sacrificed a fattened animal. That means repentance from the sinful nature because the six big steps represents a turning towards God. Six is the number of man, the sinful nature. So it is a necessary repentance toward God that needs to occur when the presence of God is there. Number two, the sacrifice of an ox. Ox represents works. You shall not muzzle an ox as it treads the grain. It was a similarity that Paul places when talking about the remuneration of ministers, uh, that they are oxen, that they are workers in God's vineyard. And so the sacrifice of an ox means that we are crucifying our fleshly works and deeds before the Lord. And then the sacrifice of the fattened animal means an increase in the anointing by righteous living. Because fat is a residue of eating of food. And so is the anointing a residue of the word becoming flesh in our lives and, and, and walking in character and righteousness. That residue of the presence of God that rests on us when we walk in obedience to God. That presence of God that comes to enable us to fulfill obedience in our daily lives, in our private lives. That is the fat, that fat animal, that fat of the animal God loved. So these are the functions of the glory of God. Repentance from our sins, crucifixion of fleshly works, and an anointing, an inward anointing that grows through righteous living. So the glory of God is not there to just affirm ourselves. It is there to transform us and to change us entirely, to crucify our flesh and ourselves that it may die. I'll go back to the book. Men have imprisoned and encased the truth, the righteousness of God. They have trimmed it to their own measure and thereby robbed it of both its earnestness and of its significance. They have made it ordinary, harmless and useless and thereby transformed it into untruth. This has all been brought to light by their ungodliness and this ungodliness will not fail to thrust them into ever new forms of unrighteousness. So we can think we are living in truth, but that our white lies, our, our living in gray areas, 
takes us further from the truth very sadly without knowing carnality and progressive Christianity and walk agendas are coming to the church very slowly very slowly and that should caution us of how far we are drifting away from God when we imprison the truth of God when we don't allow his presence to change and to transform us to transform us slowly by slowly we become dull of hearing our spiritual senses become dampened we cannot discern anymore what is good and what is evil but slowly by slowly we make the transformative truth of god to be harmless to be ordinary to just be useless and therefore we make it to be ungodliness let's not be surprised when carnality arises in our churches it is a slow fade continue with the book if mankind be itself god the appearance of the idol is then inevitable and whenever the idol is honored it is inevitable that men feeling themselves to be the true god should also feel that they have themselves fashioned the idol it is difficult to make a people who are practicing idolatry to repent of that idolatry because they don't think they are idolatrous in the first place there's a quote that says that the danger of deception is that it is utterly deceiving in luke chapter 19 verse 29 to 44 jesus has his triumphal entry into jerusalem This is a paradox because on one end he's welcomed as the Messiah of Israel the Israelites sing the davidic praise blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord they array the crown with palm leaves and welcome him sort of a dream entry because he is picturing he is entering to Jerusalem as the king when he will come in the last age but on the other end Jesus ends up crying for the city of Jerusalem for missing their hour of visitation. That means that they were offering their davidic praise to Jesus saying blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Inside their hearts there were idols. A good people a pious Jewish nation ended up crucifying him. once he touched the idols in their hearts they could not contain him for long ah, as long as he was coming as a king oh they, they, were, they were happy to appreciate him and welcome him this is the messiah but when he touched the the idols in their heart oh this is the son of joseph how can he claim such things such is the subtlety of idolatry idolatry is hard to be seen the prophetic and apostolic burdens over congregations and nations are because of this very reason many people who are living in idolatry think that they are okay the prophet malachi goes through these motions over and over again as the last prophet in the old testament that the israelites keep asking him How have we shown contempt for your name? How have we defiled you? How did we rob you? That's Malachi 1:6 um 7 and also Malachi 3 verse 8. That the people who are living in idolatry are asking the oracle of the Lord, how did we rob God in the first place? How did we defile the Lord? how vision contempt for his name they they are not aware they don't know as far as they are concerned they are good and they are religious and they love the things of god but the issue is that they don't love only god paul after a successful mission in berea came to the city of athens in greece that was a very religious city It says in Acts 17 verse 16 that now while Paul waited for them at Athens his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city holy given to idolatry a religious city but there is a spiritual eye in Paul 
just the same as with Jesus, that he can see beyond their religion that they have given themselves to idols. So there's this quality of emotion and spiritual sensitivity that when Paul, just like Jesus, sees the city, he's overcome with a burden. That is the prophetic and apostolic burden over the people. That even though there were a people religious with well-meaning intentions, they could not hear Paul any longer after he confronted them of their idols. They had to arrest him and bring him before the council. So saints, we are willing to welcome God just far enough as long as he doesn't touch our spiritual, our, our personal spaces. We are willing to just be spiritual enough. We are just willing to be charismatic enough just to have devotion enough, just to do the things of God enough until a particular level. Apostasy begins in the pews. Apostasy, the great falling away that Jesus said would come at the end of the age, it will not start from outside the church, no. But it will begin with a church that has adopted the things of the world because its discernment has been lowered, because its spiritual senses have been dampened and they've welcomed the, the walk agendas and the carnality of this world into the church. And that apostasy begins right in our pews when we are singing the choruses and when we are worshipping God and when we are doing communal work, when we are saying hi neighbor and attending fellowships, apostasy can begin from right there. That we slowly drift away from God without knowing. That without, that without knowing, with time, we have adopted things that never in our right mind we would have. Lastly, this is the rebellion that makes it impossible for us to see the new dimensional plane which is the boundary of our world and the meaning of our salvation. Against such rebellion, there can be revealed only the wrath of God. Saints, take some time with God. At this time and this moment, much has been spoken. But what is your response? If you feel like you're good and you're okay, it's fine. But if you know that there is more of God, if your cry is that God will take you to deeper places, if your cry is that enough is enough, I must change. This is my season of transition. I must go beyond where I am right now. I know that there is more. I know that I've only tapped and dropped in the ocean. And that I won't be satisfied until heaven invades my life. This is your moment right now. Partake of this grace. Lord, accompany this word with your power right now. Transformative power of the Shekinah glory of God. Change, heal, deliver. Make a mark in them that they will never recover from. Speak the peace of God. Make us to be a stable people. Right here and right now, Lord, we are available. If you are looking for someone on this earth, we are saying that we are available. We surrender of our own self-made image of what we have called God or Jesus. We want to know you afresh. That was the cry of Paul, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Forgive us, we thought we had figured you out. We thought we had it all together. But that there is more. You're calling us to more. Have your way this morning. If we don't move in our churches and in our houses and in our homes, Lord, we cannot do anything. We are nothing without you. In, in you we live and move and have our being. Without you it's not worth it. Have your way, O oh God. There is a grace for transition right now, saints. Partake of it. Whatever you have been complacent in, whatever has been dragging you behind, the sin that easily 
entangles you, it's time to drop off the weight and to run the race with endurance. Thank you, God. It is done. Amen.